Welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you with an all new episode. This one, I believe, should be coming out closer to Halloween. Not quite Halloween. I think we have about a week away. We're so close. So we want to thank everybody that has reached out to us with your case suggestions. Just to introduce yourselves to us and tell us where you're from, we greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so through a couple of ways. One is, of course, our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes and the resources we use to bring you our episodes because we like to give credit where credit is due. We also have our Facebook page by the same name, our Instagram page, Criminal Disc Pod, Twitter, and YouTube. So lots of ways to reach out for us, lots of ways to look up information on the cases that we bring you. And I don't really have any crime updates here. Let's get right into it. Yeah, this we're going to doozy. Yeah, this one, I'm not even sure how I came across this case, but I was like, I vaguely remember the court case connected to this case. And we're going to get to that later on in the story. Um, but I do remember it in the late 90s coming out because it really was kind of the first time a case like that had, I think, taken place against a publisher because of freedom of speech issues. So our episode takes place in Silver Springs, Maryland, located in Montgomery County near Washington, D.C. Now, Silver Springs is named after the mica-flecked spring discovered in the 1840s in the area. Now, I didn't know what micas were, so of course I looked it up. Micas are a group of minerals that are used in makeup foundations or fillers in cement and asphalt. <laughs> so, so like your face, the ground. Correct. It fills it all in. <laughs> So in the mid-1950s, Francis Preston Blair, he, this was a founding member of Silver Springs, played a role in helping to organize the American Republican Party. He had established a plantation in the Silver Springs area to escape the hot Washington, D.C. summers. I'm not sure how far he escaped since it's not that far from Washington, <laughs> D.C., but okay. Director Rain Johnson of Knives Out, actor Dan Futterman from The Birdcage Movie, and actress Crystal Chappelle of Guiding Light in Days of Our Lives fame, all hail from Silver Springs, Maryland. Did you watch Guiding Light or Days of Our Lives? I was an All My Children girl. I was too. <laughs> in One Life to Live. How about that? And yes. General Hospital. Oh my gosh, all of them. Okay. <laughs> so on March 3rd, 1993... Vivian Rice stopped by her sister's home around 7.15 in the morning, and she did this most days on her way to work. Now, Vivian's sister was 43-year-old Mildred Horn, who went by the name Millie, so I'm going to refer to her as Millie. And the sisters only lived about a block and a half away from one another in the upscale Lay Hill neighborhood. Now, what surprised Vivian upon her arrival was Millie's garage door was up, and that's not usually how that took place, so she's kind of like, oh, and her minivan was gone. So Millie, she worked as a senior flight attendant for American Airlines, and Vivian knew she had a flight out that morning to fly to Puerto Rico out of either the Dulles Airport or Baltimore International. I've read two different things, so I'll just, out of a major hub, she was flying out that morning. And Vivian, as she had usually stopped by, and that was to check on eight-year-old Trevor Horn, Millie's disabled son, who required round-the-clock nursing care. So Vivian sees the garage door up, she sees the car gone. She's kind of like, okay, but when she exits her vehicle, she could hear Trevor's apnea monitor alarm bell going off. And the alarm bell would only sound if there was no breathing going into the machine. So Vivian, she quickly gets back in her car, drives home, and she asked Trevor's twin sister, who had spent the night with her, to call 911 
got a hold of a neighbor and then drove back to Millie's house because she knew immediately something's wrong here. They arrived before the police and tried to enter the front door, but it wouldn't open all the way because something was blocking it. So Vivian looked inside the window and found her sister lying on the floor, having been shot in the face. So when police arrive on scene a short time later, they find the bodies of Millie, Trevor, and his night nurse, 38-year-old Janice Saunders. Millie was found right inside the front doorway. Trevor was in his hospital bed on the first floor and Janice on the floor of Trevor's room. I had watched an FBI files case, an old forensic file case. So in the way they laid it out in this two-story home is, you know, you have the front door leading into the foyer, steps there to the left going up, but to the right was a room that I believe was converted to Trevor's bedroom. Mm -hmm. So that's where they found them all on the first floor. Autopsies would show that Millie had been shot in the face three times, one of those shots going into her left eye. Janice had also been shot in the head twice, with one shot also going through her left eye. Her knitting needles had laid nearby. She had been working on a quilt for her four-year-old son when she was murdered. Trevor had been suffocated after his breathing tube had been disconnected. Now, the house looked to have been ransacked, but had more of an air of being staged to investigators. Only a few items were missing, including some credit cards out of Millie's purse and, of course, her minivan. What was more curious was what was left behind, like a five-carat diamond tennis bracelet in Millie's bathroom, stereo equipment, or even Janice's jewelry and purse. None of those items were taken. Police surmised that whoever committed these murders had entered the home through the basement window or a set of French doors on the first floor at the back of the house. Crime scene units scoured the area, but there seemed to be little evidence to be collected. The blood found at the scene matched all the victims. There were no fingerprints or fibers to collect. The only thing out of place was a long metal file found in the yard. So to the investigators, this scene had the markings of a professional hit. As in most cases, those closest to the victim are looked at first, either to rule them in or to rule them out. So Millie's ex-husband and Trevor's father were looked at even though he was 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles, California. Lawrence Thomas Horn, also goes by LT, and Mildred Marie had met during a first-class flight to Los Angeles in 1972. The couple had a whirlwind romance with Lawrence whining and dining Millie. Lawrence at the time worked for Motown Records as a record producer and chief recording engineer. He had been in the Navy where he had been a disc jockey on an aircraft carrier, Lake Champlain, before his discharge in December 1962. Upon returning to his hometown of Detroit, Michigan, his mother had introduced him to a friend who was looking to start a record company. That friend? Barry Gordy. That's a good friend. That's a good friend. <laughs> Horn was hired for $50 a week as a technician for the skills he had picked up while in the Navy. And Horn's career took off and money, fancy clothes and nice house followed. During his time with Motown, Horn worked with Motown legend Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, the Supremes and the Temptations. He's even credited with producing the Temptations hit My Girl, which spent 13 weeks on the charts in early 1965. So Horn was married to Motown receptionist in 1965, but that couple dissolved their marriage about a year later. But by all accounts, it was very amicable. Now, Horn and Millie would marry in August 1973 while on a trip to Las Vegas, and the couple would resettle in Los Angeles. By this time, Horn had left Motown to work as an independent producer, but he would rejoin the company by 1983. 
Millie Marie was born on November 11, 1949, in Walterboro, South Carolina. She was one of 14 children. And one of her sisters reported that when Millie was young, she dreamed of becoming a flight attendant. And that's just what she did, working her way through the ranks to senior status at the time of her death. Millie had a gift. And that was the gift of making people feel comfortable and cared for, which was a perfect fit for her job. I know when I'm on a flight, which everyone knows I don't fly well, that's what I want in my flight attendant. (laughs) We want a Millie. We want a Millie. (laughs) The couple's marriage is stated to have been rocky from the start with frequent separations. Horn stated in an interview after the murders that his marriage to Millie was more of a, quote, a lark, not a love thing. It was a distraction. It was fun, unquote. Well, that fun resulted in a daughter in 1974, who at the time of the murders was a freshman at Howard University. By 1979, Millie and her daughter had relocated to the Washington, D.C. area to be closer to Millie's relatives to help her raise her daughter. He said that he talked about his marriage that way after the murders? Mm Mm-hmm. That's disrespectful. (laughs) Just you wait. While finalizing the divorce proceedings, Millie found out she was pregnant with twins in 1984. So even though they were separated, they get back together. I think when one of those get back together times is when she got pregnant with her twins. Trevor and his twin sister were born on August 8th, 1984. And the twins would be born 12 weeks premature, with Trevor having to stay in the hospital for three months due to underdeveloped lungs. In September 1985, Trevor experienced what officials call an accident while in Children's Hospital National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure I would would describe it as an accident, but everything I read said accident. So this accident resulted in severe brain damage when Trevor's breathing tube dislodged and the hospital personnel didn't reconnect it until 90 minutes later. So he, when he was very young, was in and out of the hospital for various procedures. And it was during one of these procedures afterwards, when he was in recovery, that this breathing tube became dislodged. So because of this, he developed severe brain damage. He would require round-the-clock care. And his prognosis wasn't good, with Trevor now paralyzed and virtually blind in death. And doctors had told the couple he's not going to live very long. Mm -hmm. So this was the final straw for the Horn marriage, and their divorce was finalized in 1987. So the couple did share joint custody of their children, but they remained primarily with Millie. And Horn was ordered to pay $650 a month child support. So in 1988, the Horns filed a malpractice suit against the hospital that resulted in a $2.3 million settlement in addition to a $322,359 payout to Millie and a $125,000 payout to Horn. Now, Horn rarely saw Trevor, telling his oldest daughter at one point that Trevor could never be a real son to him because of his physical and mental disabilities. And he, in fact, didn't see either Trevor or his sister for over two years. Although Horn didn't seem to have a problem accepting the hospital payout money. In the spring of 1990, Millie used her part of the settlement to buy a home in the Lay Hill section in Silver Springs. The remaining settlement money was placed into a trust that should Trevor pass, that money would be paid out to his parents. Now, what Horn did with his share isn't known, but the money soon ran out, especially after Motown Records was sold to MCA and Horn was laid off. In 1988, Gordy had sold Motown Records to MCA. Horn stayed on for a time as the tape librarian, but his high salary was no more. Now he was bringing in about just $28,000 a year, and that only lasted until 1990 when he was fired. 
Now, the reason for his firing is unknown, but Horn did state in an interview it was due to politics. So Trevor, or as his family referred to him as Tricky Trevor or Little Trooper, he defied the odds and not only survived, but improved. He regained some of his eyesight and could even say a few words. Although hooked up to a respirator, he could crawl on his stomach and pick up light objects. He even attended the Stephen Knowles School in Kennington. This is a public school that services disabled students. So by 1999, Horn, in a desperate financial straits, even borrowing money from his mother to stay afloat. He was also now in the rears for his child support. Three months before the murders, he was ordered to pay Millie $18,000. That's more than half his salary now. Well, <laughs> there was no way he was getting that $18,000. Uh -uh. So Silver Springs authorities, of course, reached out to the Los Angeles Police Department to help assist in notifying Horn about the murders. Horn was tracked down at his mother's house. And when told about the murders, his reply was a bit shocking. Quote, am I a suspect? Unquote. Horn was taken to the police station for further questioning, although he wasn't very cooperative. However, his live-in girlfriend did supply him an alibi. Live-in girlfriend at his mother's house? No. Oh. <laughs> Authorities didn't believe that Horn committed the murders himself. He was 3,000 miles away. But they felt, could he have hired someone? So that is why they contacted the FBI for assistance. Now, if Horn had hired someone who then traveled across state lines to commit the murders, this is a violation of the Interstate Travel and Racketeering Statute, which allows the FBI to become involved. So in the days after the murders, Millie's handicap accessible minivan was found not far from her residence. Now, when processed, no viable evidence could be found inside. But a day after the murders, a jogger found Millie's missing credit cards on the side of the road and notified authorities. So the murders had taken place. Of course, it's in the news. This jogger's jogging. He finds these cards. Now, police would end up sending a canine unit to the place the cards were found. Actually, several weeks later, in their search, found a badly corroded gun part. Now, this was sent off to the FBI lab for testing, where it was determined to be the trigger mechanism for an AR-7 rifle. Unfortunately, the serial number had been drilled out. Suspicious. So Millie's oldest daughter was questioned by police and had agreed to take a polygraph exam, which she passed. She would go on to tell authorities that in the summer of 1992, she had a conversation with her father in which he asked her to videotape the outside of Millie's home and Trevor's bedroom. She only agreed to tape Trevor's bedroom because she wasn't comfortable with the outside of the home. No. And the inside of the bedroom, he phrased it as something like to show Trevor's grandmother, his mother, like oh. how he's doing. And keep in mind, I, there are no cell phones. So it's not like you're taking FaceTime video. I mean, this is with a, a handheld video camera. So then two days before the murders on March 1st, Horn called his daughter wanting to know where his youngest daughter would be over the next few days. Now, as was their custom, whenever Millie flew out early in the mornings, her youngest would stay with Aunt Vivian. So Horn's oldest daughter would tell authorities that on the night of the murders, she had accidentally dialed her mother instead of her boyfriend's number around 2.30 in the morning. Like, whoopsa. And this helped police nail down a timeline. Janice Saunders' last log entry was made at 2 a.m. So the nurses on duty every hour had to put an entry into this log book as to his vitals, how he was doing. And her last entry was at 2. We know her daughter calls Millie at 2.30. So they believe the time of death they felt was anywhere between 2.30 and possibly 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. So the search is on. 
On March 11th, detectives from Silver Springs, Maryland, flew to Los Angeles, and they were able to secure a search warrant for Horn's apartment. Now, once issued, they collected hundreds of audio videotapes, computers, personal papers, address book, bank statements, and telephone logs. Several items of interest were found. We'll return to this case in just a moment after this listener-only offer from our sponsor. My husband is stubborn and doesn't like to spend much time or money on grooming, so I was skeptical if Manscaped products would make any difference. Since his pumpkin patch was getting overgrown, I got him some Manscaped tools to turn it into pumpkin spice and everything nice. Their lawnmower 4.0 trimmer not only got the job done fast and well, but the built-in LED light made it easier to navigate around his gourds. To be honest, it was even fun for him to play around with. I think he finally understood what I mean by treat yourself. So this fall, treat you yourself or that special guy in your life with the last male grooming products you or he will probably ever need. Our loyal Criminal Discourse podcast listeners can enjoy a 20% discount plus free shipping when they use the code CDP20 at manscaped.com. That's CDP20 for 20% off your order plus free shipping at manscaped.com. And now let's get back to the case. One was a handwritten note on the hospital settlement paperwork. To authorities, this showed that Horn knew exactly what he would inherit upon his son's death. The second item of interest was a hand-drawn map of Millie's neighborhood with the streets outlined and labeled, as well as an X placed on Millie's home. Detectives also found what they deemed to be the alibi tape. Now, this was a videotape that showed Horn standing in front of his television set with the TV guide station on, showing the time, which was 11.45 p.m., and date, March 3rd. And of course, the 11.45 p.m. is California time. Add three hours to that, what do you have? Close to the time of the murders. So in searching through Horn's various audio tapes, authorities came upon a 22-second conversation between Horn and an unknown male. Now, why he tape-recorded his conversations, I have no idea. The words were cryptic, but to authorities, the meaning was clear. So here is part of that conversation. Unknown male. Do you want to play Horn? I'll play Horn. Okay. I'll be unknown male. Are you able to talk? No. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I'm sitting there. Can you... Um, I could take a picture of him, you know, right, you know, right there, but I couldn't. The noise, you understand what I'm saying? I wasn't able to do the others. Didn't, I didn't want to go um, front wise. So two detectives, the unknown male was the killer, letting Horn know that he was unable to take photographic proof due to being unsettled by the alarms going off on Trevor's breathing machine. So with the help of the FBI, detectives subpoenaed telephone records from AT&T for all the calls placed to Horn's apartment one week prior and one week after the murders. In all, four long-distance phone calls stood out, two coming from payphones in Detroit, Michigan, and two on March 3rd from payphones near Millie's house. One of the payphones was located outside of Denny's restaurant and the other outside of the Days Inn that came in at 5.12 a.m. Maryland time. So in searching the Days Inn hotel registration from around the time of the murder, one registration seemed to stick out. On the night of March 3rd at midnight, a man had checked in paying all cash. The night clerk, however, requested a driver's license, even though the payment was in cash. The man's name on the license was James Edward Perry from Detroit, Michigan. 
Now, in a background search on James Perry, authorities found that he had served 10 years in prison for shooting a Michigan State police trooper after an attempted robbery in early 1970s. Perry had since been paroled and now claimed to be a minister who could pick out winning lottery numbers. He called himself Apostle James, which he had printed on business cards and flyers. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I believe him to be a minister, but okay. He's a prophet. He's a lottery prophet. Here were the connections authorities were looking for. Warren was from Detroit originally, Perry was from the same city, and had been in Maryland at the time of the murders, only for a short period of time. Now all they had to do was cement this connection for an arrest warrant. So detectives and FBI agents took a closer look at Horn's telephone records, specifically the ones made on a calling card. Now, calling cards aren't used much today, but back then they were pretty popular. Calling cards were usually purchased to make long-distance calls and international calls, because back in the day, long-distance calls cost you a lot of money. Yeah, or else you had to call, collect, and ask the other person to uh, accept the charges. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> those, those were days. Those were days. Once again, authorities had to subpoena records, and through this search, they found out the name on the calling card Horn had used was Camilla McKinney. So when FBI agents went to the address associated with the calling card, they found Marsha Webb, who turned out to be Horn's cousin. There was no Camilla McKinney. She told the FBI that Horn had asked her to buy the calling card, claiming he needed it for business. Webb had made up the name to purchase the card as she thought she would be denied due to past payment problems. So detectives and agents realized that the use of the calling card and payphones created a complex web of calls that had actually begun. I had read months prior, I read year prior to the murders and continued for several months afterwards. So next, detectives and agents started the long, arduous process of unraveling this complicated web of communication because payphones, they're public. They're... (laughs) very difficult to match up. So they started out by plotting a grid of payphones in the Los Angeles area and the Detroit area that were in walking distance of Horn and Perry's residences. They were able to connect some calls going from Perry's residence to the east side of Detroit to Horn's apartment in Hollywood. So by doing this painstakingly, looking through these records, plotting this grid. So authorities decided to place 24-hour surveillance on Perry in September 1993. This was a joint project with the Michigan State Police and the FBI. Now, through their efforts, they were able to ascertain that Perry hung out with one particular guy, and his name was Thomas Turner. Who's Thomas Turner? Well, he's another cousin of Lawrence Horn. It's a family affair. So Turner and Perry had been in prison together years before. Turner had been inside for robbing a bank. Detectives and agents knew that this is the break that they had been looking for in the case. This was the connection between Perry and Horn, because otherwise they were like, how did these guys meet up? So agents decided to tickle the wires, as they say on Perry. So tickling the wires is when law enforcement approaches a suspect ask them a series of questions related to the events they are investigating in the hopes that they'll reach out to their co-conspirators. So agents approached Perry, who admitted, well, I'd been in Maryland on March 3rd, but I'd been there on business and knew nothing about the murders. However, agents didn't get what they were hoping for as their wiretaps of Horn's phone showed no contact between Horn or Perry after November 1993. So that's when they started taping Turner's phone and found that he was acting as a go-between for the two men. The FBI and detectives went back going over the phone records of the suspects and surveillance they had on them, but nothing was coming quickly. This was a long, drawn-out process. So you'd have someone in Detroit watching Perry, and then if Perry used a payphone, they, of course, noted that, and then they'd have to look at the subpoena the phone records of Horn, subpoena the phone records of Turner, and see if it matched up. 
I got to give credit for the detectives doing that work. That's tedious. That is a lot of tedious work. So it was from their wiretaps on Perry that they found out that he was planning on moving. So agents got a warrant to search his residence before he left because they didn't want him possibly destroying any evidence. So an FBI SWAT team made entry into Perry's residence, surprising both him and his girlfriend who had been in bed at the time. They recovered in the search were various bank statements and videotapes. They also found items that seemed to be out of place for a so-called minister. They found voodoo relics, soldier of fortune magazines, books on criminal investigations, and managing gunshot wounds. But two books stood out above the rest, and they were Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors, and how to make disposable silencers. So in reading the Hitman book, agents discovered several key points that seemed to match up to the murders. The books had recommended that a hitman should park a distance away from the scene. Investigators believe that that was the reason Millie's van was taken and left not far from her home. Perry had used it to get back to his rental car. The book also suggested making the hit look like a burglary by messing up the residence and taking some items, then discarding them along the roadside. Once again, this could be the reason the credit cards and part of the murder weapon were found on the side of the road. The book also recommended the hitman take a narrow file and run it through the barrel of the rifle. This also explained why a narrow file was found in the yard with gunshot residue on it. The book also recommended using an AR-7 rifle with 22 caliber ammunition, the same ammunition that was used to murder Millie, Janice, and Trevor. In January 1994, a grand jury subpoenaed Thomas Turner, who agreed to talk with a grant of immunity. Turner testified that in May 1992, Horn had come to Detroit for a cousin's birthday party. Turner said before May, he hadn't seen Horn for close to 20 years. And Horn immediately started complaining about the trouble he was having with his ex-wife and child support payments. Turner gave him the name of James Perry as someone who might be able to help him out. That is all Turner would say, but investigators felt he knew a whole lot more. On July 19, 1994, Lawrence Horn was placed under arrest in Los Angeles for the murders of Mildred Horn, Trevor Horn, and Janice Saunders. He refused to cooperate. Meanwhile, FBI agents were waiting for a judge to sign off on the arrest warrant for James Perry in Detroit. Not wanting him to flee, but also wanting to let him know that they were watching him, agents started initiating overt surveillance on him. So prior to this, it was covert, you know, stay out of the way. Let's don't let him know we're watching him. But now they wanted him to know they were watching him. So this frustrated Perry so much that after picking up a friend, Perry drove directly to the FBI field office to file a complaint. So it worked. (laughs) Call it fate or perfect timing. But when Perry arrived, the agents had the sign arrest warrant in hand. Perry demanded to see Special Agent Roach, asking him if he was going to be arrested or just harassed. (laughs) The agent's like, well, arrested on three counts of first degree murder. So one question investigators had was how did Horn pay Perry off? This guy didn't really have a lot of money. Horn had filed court papers for his claim. There was mention of a $1.7 million left in the trust, even though it was a two point three, because I think Millie had to dip into the trust for medical care for Trevor. So I think it was a little less than the original settlement. But that was stopped when Vivian Rice, Millie's sister, filed a civil suit to block Horn's claim. Investigators got their answer two months later after searching Perry's home. They had taken photographs, and at the time, they had taken a photograph of a Western Union receipt that had Perry's girlfriend's name on it. So looking further into these transactions, they discovered there were a number of them between George Shaw and Perry's girlfriend. Now, who's George Shaw, right? George Shaw turned out to be Lawrence Horn. 
who had gotten the name from an obituary that ran in the newspaper in July 1992. Shaw's obituary was right beside the obituary of Motown legend, singer Mary Wells. The address on the Western Union wire transfer was 2562 Sunset Boulevard, the same address as Motown's office building, and no one by the name of George Shaw ever worked there. So they think Horn's reading the paper, he knew Mary Wells, Caesar obituary, and then right next to her obituary is this obituary for George Shaw, and that's the name he chose to use in these Western Union transfers to Perry's girlfriend. So, but it wasn't all the money. It was just some of the money to get him to start to do the hit. And then once he got the inheritance, he was going to pay him out the rest. So in presenting evidence at Perry's trial, prosecutors told the jury that he had used the hitman book as a guide on how to get away with murder. They pointed out that he had built a homemade silencer dressed in a brown mechanic suit to look like a repairman. On the day of the murder, he drove a car rented by Turner from Detroit to the rented room at Day's Inn, which was close to Millie's home. Perry paid cash for the room, like the book suggested, hoping the hotel clerk would not ask for identification, but he did. It was this simple act of doing one's job that cracked the case for investigators. It placed Perry in Silver Springs the night of the murder and was a major mistake on Perry's part. Perry drove his rental car to a nearby shopping center and walked the rest of the way to Millie's house with the hand-drawn map that Horn had provided. Trevor's nurse, Janice, who had made her entry into the logbook at 2 a.m., again being done on the top of every hour. They surmise that Perry entered the home through that basement or the back of the house. He likely shot Janice first, once in the head, and then the eye. The shot to the eye was a recommendation from the book. Perry then removed Trevor's breathing tube, which caused the alarms to go off, awakening Millie upstairs. When she got to the bottom of the stairs, Perry met her, shooting her in the face three times, again a shot to the left eye. Perry then began to mess up the home, making it look like a burglary, took Millie's credit cards and keys, but left other more expensive items behind. With the alarms unnerving him, Perry took off leaving the metal file in the yard after running it through the barrel of the gun. He then took the minivan back to his car and along the way threw out the credit cards and broke down gun parts. His other mistake was calling Horn from a payphone beside the day's end just after the murders and then again early in the morning at the Denny's restaurant in Gaithersburg. In September 1995, after two and a half years of investigation, James Perry was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. Now his sentence was vacated after he appealed his conviction and got a new trial. At his second trial, he was found guilty in 2001 and sentenced to three life terms to be served in the Maryland State Prison System. James Perry died of an undisclosed illness on December 30, 2009. He would end up serving only 14 years, and he never admitted his guilt. Another person who never admitted his guilt was Lawrence Horn. His trial took place in April 1996. Now, after this five-week trial, he was found guilty also on three counts of first-degree murder and one count of murder conspiracy. He was sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole, and he passed away after serving 21 years in February 2017. So in 1997, the family of the murder victim sued Paladine Press for publishing the Hitman book that they felt was a blueprint that allowed James Perry to kill their loved ones. The steps Perry took to commit the murders had over two dozen similarities with the book recommendations. Now, a week before the trial was to start in May 1999, Paladine Press settled out of court, agreeing to stop publication of Hitman and paid a multi-million dollar settlement to both Horn and Saunders families. So this was the case that I remembered because it made national news. It really, I believe, was one of the first times 
victims' family members sued a publishing company because we have freedom of the press in our country. So they won. I mean, they got an out-of-court settlement, but they agreed to stop publishing this book. Yeah, it's one thing when you hear about movies, violent movies being the inspiration for murders. But it's another thing when it's a book that specifically says, do this, then this, then that specifically to get away with it. (laughs) How to, yes. That's wild. So on April 15th, 1993, just weeks after the murder of his ex-wife, child, and his child's nurse, Lawrence Horn gave that five-hour interview to reporters. And he repeatedly denied having nothing to do with her deaths. That's the one where he basically said it was almost like a lark that him and Millie got married kind of thing, not a love thing, just a fun thing. Disrespect. So here's another quote from that interview. So he repeatedly denies having anything to do with their deaths, saying, quote, for me to do that, I would be dead now. I would not be living on because what would be the purpose? I would be a monster. Unquote. No truer words, Lawrence Horn. No truer word. I think this, the two standouts for me, you said it, do your job for the That is in. the unspoken hero <laughs> of this story. Always do your job. And number two, because I don't think they would have, it would have taken a lot more legwork to make that connection with Perry. They would have had the phone calls only. But the fact that they could physically place him there, mm-hmm. just miles from her home, he by that clerk asking for his driver's license, because the book recommended paying in cash, because most like somebody may not ask for a license then, because it's not with a credit card. Brilliant. The other thing was Lawrence recording that alibi tape. You idiot. The only thing that proves is that you knew exactly when the murder was going to be happening. Yeah, <laughs> that's why they called it the alibi tape. They're like, why would he tape this? What, watching yourself record yourself watching television at a specific you idiot. Right. Now he did do a lot of recordings. He did do that. He I don't know if that was a hobby for him or like pre, you know, social media, mm-hmm. <laughs> pre YouTube. He just he would tape himself doing things a lot. But that tape really was like at 1145 at night, you're taping yourself standing in front of the television. For what purpose? Weirdo. But, right. So that is it. That is the case of the Hitman Murders out of Silver Springs, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this episode, all we would ask is that whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you could subscribe, that'd be great. If you could leave us a review, that would be even better. So as always, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Giving a shout out to the hotel room clerk who... Doing your job, man. And to the FBI agents who diligently did their job scouring hours upon hours of surveillance tapes and telephone records. It it was a long, arduous process. That's right. So don't forget also use our code CDP20 for 20% off plus free shipping. If you're looking for that gift for that special someone, keeping your pumpkin patches fresh, check out Manscaped at manscaped.com. So until next time, guys, we want you to be safe, but we also need to look out for one another. Bye. Bye.